Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. The following podcast contains explicit language. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. The office of President of the United States. The office of President of the United States. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Welcome to TrumpCast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. On TrumpCast, we celebrate the glamour and the glory of the new Camelot. Oh, God, I can't pull this off, Jason. Virginia. Yeah. You you can do it. I know I'm on the payroll, but my conscience is just not going to let me. Okay. All right. No, I got it. Vive le Trump, the 45th president of the United States of America. And we can't undo that ever. Today, we watched Donald J. Trump go from Mr. Trump of The Apprentice to President Trump of the United States of America. From the looks of Twitter, it was hard to even make jokes today about his hair or Trump's habit of sniffing. (laughs) See, it's not even that funny. But Julia Turner also just watched the inauguration speech, and her insight never founders. Julia is the editor-in-chief of Slate.com, and she manages to keep her head clear every hour and publish news and culture that elucidates even the most bewildering and dispiriting twists and turns of this life. So I can't imagine anyone better to talk about the inauguration of Donald Trump. Welcome, Julia. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm just really excited to celebrate the new Camelot with you today. We're also dazzled by the, <laughs> by the display and ceremony and pomp of seeing President Trump. Uh, it's going to be four years of uh, ornately folded coats. Yes, and apparently long ties. Did I was I was alone? I think in not noticing that Trump left. I don't know menswear at all, so I I would have missed it anyway. But that his red tie was very low today. Apparently, I also have menswear blindness, but it was also pointed out to me that this is a frequent sartorial tick of Trump's is oh. to wear an absurdly long tie. Absurdly long tie. See, our devastating critique has already begun. I mean, how could you doubt the resistance when we are talking about making jokes about Trump's tie? Jokes are not that fun today. That was one of the things I was thinking on Twitter, that no one could muster the high spirits to make jokes. My 
I mean, there's a lot to talk about having just watched the inauguration and the pomp and circumstance. But one thing that struck me watching it this morning is that the inauguration has always had a set of pomp and ceremony and circumstance, which serves two functions, both of which have a slightly odd fit for what the occasion actually is. One is they make it seem like we live in a monarchy, like an inauguration fundamentally has more trappings. And, um, you know, it's not like a humble guy standing up on like a pine box to say, I'm going to lead you now. Thanks for voting for me. Yeah, this is your house. There's like gold and brass and it feels regal, right? It does. And and, um, on the one hand, it feels strangely retrograde and kingish. Yeah. Uh, And on the other hand, it does make you feel that something has transpired. I found myself thinking this morning of the experience you sometimes have when you go to the wedding of friends who've chosen to be married by one of their random friends who got a, mm. a ministry certificate off the internet. Yeah. And like those people don't always know how to make it seem as though some shift has transpired. Uh, yes. Uh, and, you know, the... the It is like a, a bit like a... Uh... A bad wedding or an upsetting wedding. Yeah, or, well, I mean, this is the, the inauguration, all the pomp and circumstance of the inauguration, even though it doesn't feel like the most American thing we do, it honors the most American thing we do, right? So it feels very, you know, imperial, but it is about the thing that makes us most American. And that disjunction I've always found jarring no matter who's getting inaugurated, but it was particularly jarring today where the pomp seemed to actually accord with the regard and, you know, the the guilt regard with which our new president seems to, you know, regard himself. Did you um, watch, and speaking of monarchies, did you watch The Crown, the uh, story I, of... The I have not watched Queen The Elizabeth. Crown, no. Um, at some point, she, I mean, she is so reluctant. Well, she's expected to give up her, give up her humanity, literally, in, in order to embody England and, you know, become... Elizabeth Regina, the queen. And she's told at some point when she's not sure she can go through with the coronation that she's being anointed, not appointed. This is like a holy calling. And there's a little of, I mean, our presidents are not even appointed. They are elected. But there's a little of the move from elected blow through appointed all the way to anointed with, you know, I think all that the church brought into the state at this moment is also very, very strange. Right. There's um, there's always a lot more God in the mix than there is in your average encounter with the American government. Yeah. I mean, uh, Trump doesn't talk much about God and he leaned hard on that monosyllable today. I think he used it as an applause line. There should be no fear. We are protected and we will always be protected. We will be protected by the great men and women of our military and law enforcement. And most importantly, we will be protected by God. Well, you know, and we haven't circled around to the most startling moment of the inauguration today or passage of the inauguration. You know, the thoughts around ceremony to me were all around kind of the all of the watching of the slow walking and the who is seated and the yeah, who announces right. whom. But the speech itself yeah. was a real message, I think, about Trump's mindset as he enters the presidency uh, and about how he's framing the tasks ahead of him and one that I found very troubling. I mean, if you compare the Inauguration Day speech to some of his addresses in the past, the two obvious ones that come to mind for me are the speech he gave on election night and the speech he gave on the final night of the Republican convention. Yeah. And, you know, the election night speech, I think people were so stunned by the result at the moment, it was a little bit hard to recognize, but the 
election night speech did strike a genuinely conciliatory note. It seemed he seemed to sincerely be saying, I you know, want to be president for all Americans. He led with that. He seemed to acknowledge the division in the country and and to genuinely be saying, um, I, I want to be president for all of you, even though this has been a hard fought battle. Lots of politicians say things like that. It was, I think a lot of people at the time dismissed it as pabulum because, you know, of the way in which he came to power and, and many of the things he said about various American groups on the way in and, and some of the extreme folks who supported him. Um, but I would have happily taken a speech that had the shape and tenor of the election night speech rather than the one that we got today, which was full of incredibly violent language. He used the word American carnage. He used the word savage. He talked about blood. I mean, it was a it was a populist speech. It was a speech that was violent in its rhetoric yeah. and, and really recalled the um, RNC speech. I mean, the RNC speech's focus was more I alone can fix it. And there was a lot more That's we right. and you in this speech, a lot more you, the American people are now in charge and I'm, you know, just your vessel. Uh, that's not an actual quote, but that seemed to be the vibe. Um, but the the framing of it and the way he set it up, it felt much more combative to me than some other modes we've seen him in. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, he, um, you know, it seems like the archetypal, maybe some people think Kennedy, but the archetypal inaugural speech to me is Lincoln's second, where he's talking about binding up the wounds of the nation. And many, many presidents have reprised that idea that they come in, you know, in this like fragmented, like the party has just been through the primaries and has seemed divided. And then the two parties between them have seemed divided. And now this is the time to bind up wounds, even if even if we're not coming off a civil war as Lincoln was. But um, you're right, we didn't hear that. He did talk about inheriting a nation in, in absolute shambles. And and for Trump, I feel like he wants to rebuild New York from the 70s to the 80s, like woman rink again, all over again, or mm-hmm. like put up. He's always describing this dystopic city of the 70s, this ungovernable New York that private money and and private development is going to somehow make great again or resurrect from the like burned out projects that defined it in the 70s you know when you're when you're doing the 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 king thing of describing the very powerfully describing various places in the nation you know that will come together the hills of new hampshire and so forth windswept plains of nebraska that's right so we got i think didn't we get windswept plains today yeah but then the urban sprawl of detroit Yes. Just, I mean, just not exactly the room. I mean, each one of those is supposed to throw a bone to the regions that they're, you know, it's all the great state of Maine and the great state of Texas. But this time it was the cities are always desolate. It was like whether you're born in a shitty place or a great place. Yes, Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You bleed the same American blood. Yes. Yeah. I I think that's such an interesting observation about Trump in the 70s. I had never put that together. But I think you're right. I mean, what he's describing is not something reflected in by the data about where things I think, stand. I think it, um, yeah, I think it, it strikes, it's this cognitive dissonance where we're, he's imagining a different world. You know, sometimes, you know, I mean, I'm all over the place, but what seemed amazing to me is that he's assuming this position at the top of this bureaucracy all these public servants around him who've been doing this job. And the one of the first things he says is to slag off all of Washington, all these people who are around him. He actually seemed to say they had enriched themselves, like that they were, he was standing with plutocrats and kleptocrats, which, you know, isn't exactly how you see 
how you see the presidents. You right. Know? There's and a version it's of certainly the... not how you see Chuck Schumer, you know? Yeah. There's a Chuck Chuck Schumer is not a flawless man, but those are not his flaws. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the um yeah, there's a version of the speech that acknowledged Hillary and her supporters in a much more explicit way. I mean, I do wonder if um seems like such an insecure man. I do wonder if some of the response to his presidency and, and his election and the vitriol around it are part of what shaped the change in tenor from the election night speech to this night speech. You know, like maybe he hoped yeah. everyone would accept him as a plausible and reasonable 45th president who people would give a fresh chance to and hope that he would start anew. And, you know, I think it's possible that the the re- the response of revulsion uh he did not take kindly to. And I wonder if he feels on the defensive and, and more combative in part because of how uh, unhappy so much of the country has been about his victory. What Speaking of the people, what did you make of the um, the crowd shots of the inauguration? I mean, there was some comparisons of how crowded the mall was for Obama's inauguration in 08 uh, and how scant the crowd seemed at Trump's inauguration what what did you make of that? I mean, the one joke on Twitter that I could muster a smile for, and I have to say my, my sense of humor seems dead today, but um, someone showed one of the pictures that was widely circulated that made it look very sparsely attended. And the numbers are always ideological, so I don't know what to what to rely on. And, you know, frankly, I guess I, I think we have bigger fish to fry than counting how many people showed up. But watch, I'll say another thing tomorrow at the ra- at the marches where I'll be very, very happy if there are high numbers out uh, against Trump. Anyway, in this picture that showed hardly anyone out there, someone posted, well, if you comb it, comb this crowd over and then up comb it in the back <laughs> and then smooth out into a ducktail the very back, it looks kind of crowded. <laughs> I thought that was kind of nice. I should give credit, but I don't have it. But see, we laughed for a second. But why, you know, you were saying, I hope this is okay if I repeat it, you were feeling a little nause- nauseated. And, um, you know, I had something of the same thing. I felt a little like I was going to pass out almost. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a sense of unreality about this man becoming the leader of the United States. He seems so ill-prepared, so unfit, so temperamentally unlikely. His nominees seem troubling in all kinds of ways. And, you know, this is the moment where the thing that seemed like it couldn't be real actually becomes real. Like it became real at the moment of the election, but now it's really real. And I think that kind of vertigo of how could this be what is happening um, to me was what felt yeah dizzy a little nauseous and a little dizzy there was some someone was saying um, that on the night of the election a friend of mine said I can't believe it it's his face is going to be everywhere now in airports and as the president of the United States and I dismissed it at the time and then I was looking at a place map my children have you know that has the presidents from George Washington to Barack Obama just each one in their like sensible place in history now culminating in Obama, which looks, you know, which it just adds up. It looks like the beautiful progress of history. And then I just thought, oh, those placemats have to be remade. Whatever your ideology, this is we. what's done cannot be undone. Yeah. You know, it, it's it, it's absolutely here and done. And we will not be able to reverse this. He, he is the 45th president of the United States forever, <laughs> how, for however long that continues to be true. 
Well, I, you know, you and I haven't gotten uh, to talk much because in the run around, um, running around here, but I know that you said that before the election, you were really looking forward to in Slate doing much more cultural coverage. And, you know, obviously that's not how the fourth quarter turned out to be for you guys. You, you know, you couldn't switch to, uh, doing pre-Oscar coverage or whatever of movies, it became, it's still all politics. I want to just talk a little bit, a tiny bit, about now that the inauguration's gone down, how do you see this direction of Slate right now? Um, I mean, is this like a resistance headquarters or is, um, I, I don't know, are there other stories? Do you think that there's a possibility that this puts a period on the high anxiety time about Trump? I do not think this is the period. I think this is the capital letter that begins the sentence. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, to me, this is not resistance headquarters. We're journalists and our job is to figure out what is happening and what is true and tell it to people. Yeah. But I think the power that journalists have now is the power of where to direct their attention. So, you know, over the past couple of months, we've been sorting out where we want to focus our reporting and what we want to look at. And I do think the the past nearly two months have been a moment of prediction. Mm. And that's been a really frustrating place to be in because obviously one of, one of the problems of the election was that so much of the election news cycle was about prediction and so many of the predictions were wrong, right? Yeah. So journalists spent months predicting what the outcome would be, predicting what forces would contribute to that outcome, primarily being wrong about it and being very surprised by the result. And then we're immediately thrust into a moment where our primary job was interpretation and prediction. Okay, what's he going to be like as president? Mm -hmm. Who's he going to pick? Okay, he picked that person. Is that person going to get approved? How, how's that going to go down? Like fundamentally we had to still be in a predictive mode. And that's just a really weak mode for journalists because no matter how careful you are about it and and how reserved and cautious you are in your presentation of, of you know, why you think things are going to go the way they're going to go, a predictive mode is never a journalist's strongest mode. So now journalists broadly, I think, can turn to the work of what is happening? What is the administration doing? Mm -hmm. How are the policies that it's enacting and the people that it's appointing affecting Americans of all kinds, ones who voted for Trump, ones who didn't, mm -hmm. people in cities, ravaged or no, um, <laughs> people on the windswept plains of Nebraska. Um, <laughs> and in the uh, urban sprawl. And in the urban Detroit. sprawl of Detroit. <laughs> You're so right. Like usually that sense would be like in the shining factories, in the, yeah. you know, in the, um, in the, in the regenerating downtown. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think at Slate here we feel, you know, well, our sleeves are pre-rolled and we're mm -hmm. ready to dig into what comes next. Um, you know, and I think the the challenge is to report out um, action and impact. And mm -hmm. it really gets us away from the mode of predictive, you know, concern. And I think the concern is warranted, but if you evince predictive concern about everything, it becomes a little bit hard to discern which things you should actually be most concerned about. I think that's right. It's, you know, you say it's the capital letter that begins the four-year sentence. Um, and I mean that both ways. <laughs> um, the four-year sentence or the, you know, maybe maybe shorter, ideally not longer. But that sentence also applies to the press. And it, it is a galvanizing time. It's not a happy time. But I, there is a new spirit of of purpose, I think, in the media and partly leaving ideology and politics out of it because this is such a strange and complicated story that we now need to devote all our energies to telling. Yeah. I mean, just the unprecedentedness of the relationship his family will have to power or the relationship his family will have to its companies while he's in power 
beyond what all of his appointees do or don't understand about the briefs of their departments or the extent of federal laws or all the other things that were revealed in the hearings over the past couple of weeks. It, it is a complex story to understand. And I think the trick will be to balance the focus on Trump, the man and the persona and what he does from the Oval Office and the impact on Americans everywhere. Well, Julia, we have our work cut out for us. Thanks for joining me on Trumpcast today. Thanks for having me on, Virginia. Thank you. So that's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer at Panoply. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. We'll be back next week with more Trumpcast. Trumpcast.